Hey, welcome to the 55th episode of Two Writers Slinging Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated senior writer, former ESPN columnist, author of multiple New York Times bestsellers, and a columnist for The Athletic. The music you're listening to is Croissant's Master by the great MC White Owl. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from journalism to songwriting to screenwriting to novels to romance to comics to whatever genre I'm thinking of. And today, my guest is Jonathan Martin, the New York Times national political correspondent. And we're going to talk, well, political writing in the crazy age of Donald Trump. How to cover the weirdest period in modern American history. What's it like being on a presidential campaign for two plus years? How to respond to fake news and failing New York Times and all the different taunts. Jonathan is one of the best political journalists in the country. And he's here right now on Two Writers Slinging Yang. All right, Jonathan, first, thanks a lot for joining me. I really appreciate it. I know how busy you are. And uh, I'm going to go just basic here and something I wonder about with journalists all the time. So literally, what is your day? How does this work for you? Yeah. Um, Well, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Uh, It just totally depends on the calendar, right? It depends on the year. It depends on the time of year. So I cover national politics for the Times. I'm based in D.C., um, but I'm on the road quite a bit traveling the country. And if you look at the job, it's basically in, in for a four-year cycle. There is the presidential year. So let's just start last year, right? There's the presidential year, which would have been 2016. Okay. And that year is obviously prime time for us. That's the world paying attention. The country's riveted. We're covering, uh, you know, 99% of our time is covering. The campaign for president. All right. The year after is the quietest year typically in this job because you've only got two statewide races, the governor's races in Jersey and Virginia, and, you know, the occasional special election. Now, last year we had quite a few of those, but in terms of actual elections, it's pretty sleepy. So that's really a year where you can do enterprise, where you can sort of do larger trends. Um, you know, most of the attention is focused on the new administration or the second term, um, and it's more policy and kind of DC oriented. The following right. year is the midterm cycle. Now that's kind of my favorite time, to tell you the truth, because you're covering the, the fight for control of Congress, a lot of governor's races are on the ballot, and it means a lot of time traveling uh, all over the country. And it's not just Iowa and New Hampshire. You know, you really get to dig into some states. You otherwise wouldn't get to during the presidential years. And so that to me is fun. Um, you can really drill down on uh, a place and capture, you know, what's happening in that place. And to me, the best part of this job, uh, I love politics. I, I love the competition. Um, you know, who wins, who loses. But the best part of the job to me is being able to sort of capture the country, the history of the country, uh, the future of the country, the present day through the prism of our elections. And there's no better way to do that than really go into a state, spending a few days there and capturing what's happening on the ground. And during midterms, we can do a lot of that. All right. The next year is the year before the presidential cycle. And that's what's called the invisible primary. And it's a lot of debates. There's a lot of stories about, you know, fundraising, um, a lot of time in Iowa, New Hampshire. Uh, it's kind of this, the, the first jousting of, the presidential cycle. And over the years, these campaigns for president have started earlier and earlier. So the year before has really become 
an animal unto itself. I mean, there's tons of action the year before, even if there's not actual votes. And then you're back in the presidential year. And, you know, starting in usually January, February, you've got votes in Iowa and New Hampshire, and then you're off to the races. So that's kind of the four-year cycle for us. You said, um, quote, I love politics. And I feel like 80% of Americans feel the exact opposite. They hate mm. politics. Like, why yeah. do you love politics? Two reasons. First of all, I'm a sports junkie. I grew up consumed with sports. I fell in love with newspapers first through the sports section. I, I grew up in Arlington, Virginia, and our hometown paper was the Washington Post. And as a kid, that's what first got me hooked on reading papers was the sports section as a kid. Um, phenomenal, as you know, uh, coverage of sports. Thomas Boswell, Will Bonk, Hornheiser, you know, Ken Denlinger, um, Leonard Shapiro. I mean, just so many fantastic okay. uh, reporters there, Maskey. Uh, the list goes on and on. And so I, I enjoy the competition of politics. There's a start, a middle, and an end. There's a winner. There's a loser. Um, there's sort of strategies and tactics. Um, it's all the competition of sports, but the stakes are even higher. So that's part of the reason why. I like. It. I can kind of get my my, my sports fix through politics, um, just on a bigger stage. The other piece of it, though, and that to me is more compelling, is I love history and I love trying to figure out who we are as a country and how we got here and where we're going. And I think politics is the best vehicle to um, explore that. Um, I want to know why states vote the way they do and why voters in certain places prefer one party over the other or prefer one candidate over the other. And that lets me explore North Dakota or Tennessee or Texas or, you know, California, like, you know, and really drill down in those places. So that's really it. It's kind of a love of sports and competition with a deep curiosity about the country. You know, it's kind of funny. I grew up a, I grew up a Mets fan in New York and, you know, when I started covering baseball, I no longer really cared how the Mets did. You know, you kind of separate yourself. But but I would have friends of mine when I was at Sports Illustrated covering baseball, you know, in a panic about the Mets. And I'd be yeah. like, no, it's it's okay. It's okay. You know, they're developing their pitching and blah, or whatever. You know, they have some young guys coming. You just got it takes time. And I wonder, if, for you being super close to politics and in yeah. it every day, do you not have the panic that the average person has? I mean, first of all, I think you have to realize that there are some folks in this country that aren't panicking at all. I mean, there are, you know, anywhere from 30 to 40 percent of people are pretty happy with what's going on. And they feel like the, the country is, is you know, turned around and they like all the winning to borrow from the president. Um, right. So I think that's important to recognize for the other part of the electorate that is alarmed about what's happening in Washington and with the administration. Um, yeah, I certainly appreciate the concern and, and, and I understand um, the worry. It, it's, it, it's a good question because, we, you know, we are wrapped so far inside that we kind of live and breathe every tweet, kind of every move. And um, that makes us in some ways more familiar with what's happening and at, at times makes me a little bit concerned. But at other times, it makes me less concerned, right? And this is kind of an ongoing discussion among folks that cover politics for a living when it comes to um, President Trump and this administration is, you know, is this uh, the kind of thing that people should be genuinely concerned about? 
um, that heading toward autocracy, um, you know, threatening the press, um, eroding norms in politics? Or, you know, is this something that like, no, this is not Turkey under Erdogan. Um, this is somebody who, you know, just happened into this job and, you know, likes press attention, but he's not going to yank the credentials of the White House press corps. In fact, he's the last guy in the world that wants to lose press coverage. That's what he cares about. So let's not overreact. I mean, this is like an ongoing discussion uh, among journalists about covering this administration. And I don't think that it's been really resolved yet. Um, I will say this. If you look at the history of this country, this is nothing that's terribly abnormal. My friend John Meacham has this new book out, The Soul of America. It's a, a good read that sort of captures how this country's always had kind of fits and starts and that, you know, years of progress and eras of, of progress have oftentimes been, been followed by backlash politics. Um, so this is not new in that sense. And, um, the country has come through it and has, uh, you know, kept trying to form as our documents say, our founding documents say a more perfect union. It's funny, like, uh, I re, you know, I follow you on Twitter. I follow Maggie Haberman on Twitter, a whole bunch of different people. My pal, yeah. They have different people yeah. from the different spots. And, um, yeah. you guys seem to walk through the fake news, the failing New York Times, <sighs> the failing Washington Post. It doesn't seem to even phase you. It's not on the slightly. level. It's not on the level. Okay. Nobody that I've covered in American politics cares more about press coverage and cares more about winning the good favor of elite press than Donald Trump. Right. Um, so like, not only does he not hate the press, he's consumed with winning their affection. Obama, Bush, Clinton, Reagan, Bush 41, they cared about their press coverage. It was not remotely like this president. This president's central focus is getting good press and how he's being covered in the press. Like that is the game for him. <clears throat> so when he lashes out like that and threatens to, you know, yank press credentials, I, I think a lot of us just don't take it seriously. A, because we've been covering this president now for, um, three years. He announced in June of 15. Um, and for others like Maggie, they've been covering him for 20 years. And this is his MO and the idea that somehow he's going to, you know, take after the press. It's just the opposite. He wants the press to like him in the worst way. Uh, what I'm sort of curious about and kind of like one of my little daydreams is like when his, his base would like kind of wake up and wonder, uh, why does the president care so much about the New York Times and the Washington Post? Like, uh, why is he so obsessed with like winning their, their, their good favor? Um, now that's never going to happen, but I mean, he cares much more about good press coverage than any politician I've ever covered. And the idea that he wouldn't let like the press come to Singapore, for example, I mean, it's like that was the point of the summit was to get the press there so we could get the <laughs> images like that's what he does. He is an optics guy. He is a a salesman. Um, and, you know, he's selling Donald J. Trump and the details to him don't matter as much. So, like, of all the things going on with this administration, the press is like one of the last things I'm concerned about, because for him, that's the whole game. Right. It's funny. I have a book coming out uh, in a few months about the old United States Football League. And he yeah, I've been hearing about that. Yeah. And um, he, had, you know, he had this moment of realization. He'd been a real estate developer and maybe they'd write about him on the inside, you know, page 17 of the tabloids. And as soon as he buys a football team and signs Herschel Walker, he's on the on the front page and the back page. And he's totally this is the greatest thing ever. And I do think people forget that, that this is a 
a very weird love affair. And the yeah. last thing he wants is to end the love affair. Yeah, he, he is more of a media guy, Jeff, that he is a business guy, right? <clears throat> I mean, I think, you know, he, he started out obviously in real estate, and, uh, thanks to his dad, kind of built the real estate company, expanded it into Manhattan. But his interest for decades now has been much more media focused than it has been on business. And, you know, he never had a board of directors. It was like a family owned company with not a fair ton of employees. Um, uh, so it's not like he was running GM. Uh, he's really more of a media promotion figure um, than he is a sort of boardroom guy. And that's how you have to understand him, um, that he sees everything through the lens of how is this selling in the press? How is my coverage? And really, what we're covering here for like the last year and a half is him reacting to press coverage. It's very meta. Um, you know, he makes a lot of decisions based on how things are being covered in the press. So, like, in some ways, this is a really empowering moment for the press because – he pays attention to our stories. He watches TV hours every day, and he decides on a lot of policy based upon the press reaction. Um, so that is different. Um, I mean, all presidents care about how the press coverage is going, but for him, it's central. Have you had other- – And by the way, he's old school. He's a print guy, right? This is not somebody yet. He, he's mastered Twitter, but – he really is still like an ink on paper guy. He reads for the New York Post first. He loves the Times, consume with the Times. And he, you know, he still reads the print copy. He cares about uh, the headlines, cares about, you know, placement in the paper. Real fast story for you that, that you'll love. I recall a moment in 2017, and your uh, listeners should know, I cover national politics. I cover campaigns and elections. I don't cover the White House day in, day out. Right. Um, we have fantastic folks there doing that. But there are moments where I get pulled into Trump-related coverage because obviously he is sort of the central issue in the campaign. And there was this moment last year, I recall, I was going round and round one night with White House folks. They were so irritated at a story. And um, finally, I had a senior White House official say, look, what's the headline going to be? And I said, I don't, I don't know. Like Editors write those. I'll, I mean, and it turns out that the concern was what was going to be the print headline on the front page of the paper the next day. So it was like less the content of the story. It was more just would the headline make Trump out to be weak? And that was the whole game. And this took like five phone calls where we finally got to the point of like, look, what's the print headline going to be? Because that's what he cares about, right? So this is like an old school figure, right? New York Post in his hand, New York Times in his hand, Time Magazine covers, like, very old school press wise. This is not somebody who's, um, who, well, you know, he, he does tweet. This is not somebody who is, um, you know, on the iPad reading stories. Right. The whole relationship reminds me a little of like when, um, when you're like 15 and you like a girl in school yes. and you treat her negatively in a way, yes. but you like her much more than you hate her, but you can't, you don't have the emotional sort of makeup to express it. So she's this won't shock you, but, but um, you are not the first person to make that a comparison. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah I know. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, exactly. So um, I would just tell your listeners, I mean, the fake news stuff and the failing New York Times, it's it's just not real. Um, you know, uh, saying I don't know who Maggie Haberman is, it's just laughable. He's known her for decades and he's just dying to um, win her over and has been for some time now. Um, so like of all the kind of Trump artifice, like that is uh, that is like the most fraudulent. 
Before we continue with Two Riders Sling and Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my friend Nastya, who's from Ukraine. So Nastya, who's your favorite USFL team? Uh, how about this? One game, who do you start? Chuck Fusina or Glenn Carano? Uh, do you think the Invaders were robbed in the 85 title game? Huh. Maybe she just doesn't understand that this is an ad for 503 Sports. Wait, did you say 503 Sports? I just ordered two Federals jerseys, a Wranglers baseball hat, three Bandits t-shirts, and a Stars patch. Wait, you understood me this whole time? You know what? In any language, 503 Sports is where it's at for throwback sports merchandise. Shirts, hats, jerseys, we're talking USFL, World Football League, XFL, Minor League Baseball, Minor League Hockey, or, put differently, if you're a man or woman who has long dreamed of owning a Kit Lathrop Arizona Outlaws jersey, well, dreams come true. The merchandise at 503 Sports is handcrafted and all very reasonably priced. So be like Nastia, go to 503-sports.com and type in coupon code YANG18 to get 10% off your first purchase. You have a you had a story. It's one of my actual one of my favorite stories of the year, and it was uh, March May fifth, two thousand eighteen, at his ranch. John McCain shares memories and regrets with friends, and uh, yeah. you went to Phoenix to write it. The lead yeah. is uh, when former Vice President Joseph Biden traveled to Senator John McCain's Arizona ranch last Saturday to spend a few hours with his ailing friend. The two reminisced about the quote unquote crazy senators they had served with, the overseas trips they took together for decades, and the friendship Mr. McCain forged with Mr. Biden's two sons, and. Yeah. It's this beautiful, beautiful story about sort of John McCain. And in a way, his final days are kind of wrapping up his, his life yeah. and, and the, the different people. And I wonder if you could give me sort of go into detail. How did you decide to do this? What did you have to go through? Did you have to get his approval? Like, how did you, how did yeah. this happen? So I appreciate your, your mentioning that piece. Um, I first have to give credit to a colleague of mine. So Mark Leibovich, who you probably know because he just did this big NFL book that, that's coming out. And um, he's been kind of veering from politics to the NFL beat for the last couple of years. Mark is a colleague of mine in the Washington Bureau. In 2009, when Ted Kennedy was dying, Mark did a couple of stories about sort of Teddy and Winter that I loved, that, that stayed with me. And so when McCain got his brain cancer diagnosis last year, I started thinking about those stories. And look, this is like 2017. We're in the first year of Trump. It's, you know, exhausting. Um uh, and, you know, McCain leaves Washington and goes back to Arizona and hasn't come back for months to DC, but we're all consumed with Trump. But in the back of my mind, I'm thinking about, you know, we've got to capture what's happening with McCain in this moment of Trump. I mean, you know, John McCain is probably one of the last famous people in Washington, DC in Congress, right? Like he's one of the last big figures who's a household name in Congress and, um, has been famous, by the way, for, now 40 years. And so I just felt like we had to capture what's McCain thinking? What's he doing? You know, uh, what's his health like? And what does his absence to Washington at this moment mean? And um, we kind of kept putting it off because, you know, there's always a, a story of the day or the week. And then finally, at the end of April, I was thinking about the immigration issue and kind of McCain's absence um, in that issue because the Republican Party has really sort of moved away from the more um, uh, dovish immigration 
uh, style that, that, you know, George W. Bush championed and uh, McCain championed. And that got me thinking about McCain broadly. And I made a couple of phone calls to people who I know had seen him and, you know, he's not in great shape. And it sort of dawned on me that I've got to get at the story and sort of capture what he's, what he's doing. And I asked about seeing him. I asked about talking to him on the phone. Neither of those were options. So I had to figure out, well, how do I still do this story? Luckily, he's had a procession of people out there seeing. And um, it was the foundation of my story was people who had gone and seen him and talked to him. A couple other things going on, too. This is the start of May. And HBO had put together this documentary last year about McCain's life. And that documentary had been finished in early May, and it was coming out at the end of May on Memorial Day. That was a news hook that I had uh, on the story that made it sort of topical to the moment. I got a hold of that documentary before it came out. I watched a screener of it. There was news in the, in the documentary. Secondly, McCain has hit what is his last book coming out also later in May, co-written by Mark Salter, his former chief of staff. There's another news hook for this moment. Uh, you know, McCain's final, you know, memoir, um, his last word on American politics, basically. So I've got, you know, the documentary and the book that I can kind of use as the news element of this. And then I, I can get the people who have seen him to sort of like flesh out the scene at his ranch in Sedona, Arizona. And, you know, I went out to Phoenix because I wanted to talk to more folks on the ground there. I saw the governor when I was there. It was the same time as the teacher strikes were taking place at the state capitol. And what was striking, Jeff, was talking to all these strikers uh, who were Democrats almost entirely in their red shirt on the grounds of the capitol, teachers, and talking to them about McCain. And they all liked McCain because McCain's kind of like a bigger figure of history at this point. And they were praising McCain, saying, you know, he's kind of our Barry Goldwater of this generation. When you think about Arizona, you think of the Grand Canyon and John McCain. And I went upstairs into the Capitol and went to the, the top of the Capitol and saw the governor who's clashing with these protesters. And the governor, who's a Republican, is praising John McCain. So that was kind of a neat moment at the Arizona State Capitol where these folks on either side of the political divide are both praising McCain. And then there were also some people in Arizona and, and Phoenix who were longtime friends of McCain who had seen him, who I sat down with, who could you know kind of flesh out McCain's condition and kind of what he's talking about. Um, so I had two things going on. I, I, I had the sort of people who had seen him and who could sort of set the scene of McCain at the ranch. And then I had the, the sort of news of the moment, this new documentary coming out and the McCain book. And there was news. The news in both the book and in the, the documentary with McCain himself on camera was he wished he had picked Lieberman to be his running mate in 08. Now, I cover that campaign. And I've been waiting for this moment for 10 years now where John McCain, who was too honest for his own good, would finally fess up and say, I wish I hadn't picked Sarah Palin. I knew it was going to happen before he passed away. Um, and he kind of did it in a backdoor way. You know, he, you know, he didn't say point blank, I shouldn't have picked Palin. What he did was he said, I should have ignored my advisors and picked my friend Joe Lieberman. That's what I wanted to do. So that was the kind of newsy. Uh, element of this too. And then when I'm wrapping up the reporting of it and I'm starting to write, I get another sort of newsy element, much more here and now, um, that McCain has told the Trump administration that when his funeral does happen, and hopefully that's not going to be for a while, he doesn't want President Trump at the funeral. And so I had book and documentary where McCain's getting this 
off his chest about regretting the Palin issue. I've got McCain now saying he doesn't want Trump at his funeral. And I've got this incredible scene at the ranch. So, you know, it was in some ways just good timing and um, a kind of intuition of uh, where the story is ripe. The story is overflowing with quotes from different people, you know, Biden, yeah. Lieberman, blah, blah, all these different. Is it? Yeah. So you want to talk to Joe Biden, just as an example. You want to get Joe Biden on John McCain. Yeah. You just call his office. Right. Is that easy? No, 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 I see your side. That's, that's a very good question. Um, yeah. So, um, for some of these folks, you can just call them up directly on a cell phone or you can email them. Now, Biden's a former vice president. It's a little more difficult. Uh, in the case of Biden, I know his people. I, I know the vice president a little bit from covering politics. And I told his folks what I was doing. And, um, they thought about it for a day and then they were willing to do it because Biden really cares about McCain. And, um, they put Biden on the phone with me for what was supposed to be a few minutes. And it turned out to be half an hour because Joe Biden likes to, likes to talk. Uh, and, uh, in the course of that conversation, Joe Biden volunteered. I didn't ask. He volunteered this that McCain had told him that he ought to run for president in 2020 or well, stay in politics and, and in the future, which we kind of know what that means. And so Biden volunteers that to me during the course of this conversation about his McCain visit. And there I had another news nugget to offer into the story that McCain yeah. urges Biden to run for president in 20 that I just kind of stumbled upon because the vice president volunteered it to me. So, yeah, it really worked out nicely. Um, but, yeah, I, th- I think for some, some of those uh, interviews, you know, you just email or call their cells because you have it from covering politics. In other examples like Biden, it takes a little bit of um, negotiation, talking to staff. That story is a little bit different from what I, I usually do. I usually am sort of covering politics and political trends. That that was a little bit different of a story. But, um, yeah, it was very uh, rewarding, and, and I'm glad that I did it. I covered the McCain campaign in 08 and got to know him, and um, uh, it was sort of fun to come back and talk to people from that campaign and, and, and relive some of those memories. So you covered your first presidential campaign. You covered 08, then you covered 12, yeah. then you covered 16. Those are your yeah. three. Um, yep. What what is it like on day one hundred and six of covering a presidential campaign? It strikes me very similar when I used to cover baseball, and you 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 it was Brewers Cubs, two teams that are both combined forty games out, and it's August, yeah. but you need to be right. there, and you're yeah. just like I'd rather uh, kill me, you know? What is there something to eat? What is it like covering a presidential campaign when you're deep into it, but you're not toward the end? You're just somewhere in the netherworld. It depends on what's happening in the campaign. So, like, the Trump-Hillary was never boring because it was just every day it was some incredible dynamic, something he said or some moment. So, you know, if it's a competitive race, there's really not much of a lull. Um, and I, I've had the good fortune of covering some really interesting campaigns. I mean, 12 was not quite as riveting as 16 or 08, but still, I mean, there's still a lot of action. Um I mean, the challenge, I guess, probably from 12 more than 08 or 16 is when you have more conventional candidates who do stick to more of a script and the issues and the sort of news environment are less um, crazed. I guess that can be a challenge, right? So, you know, there's no recession, there's no war, there's no outlandish sort of moment or candidates like Obama, Romney, August 14th, Romney gives his thumb speech. Obama gives his thumb speech. Yeah, like that's more of a challenge to like find the news of, of the day. But there's always some way to like capture larger themes, uh, even in kind of those moments. It reminds me a little of, uh, or it strikes me a little as almost like summer camp, where 
you're with the same people day after day. You have this kind of bond. You know. You're in, 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 and then one day it just ends. You're like, what do I do with my life now? Yeah, no, that that's totally right. Um, there, there's definitely something to that. Um, it's not terribly different from sports. You know, you're on the road. Um, the the debate nights are kind of our version of like the late night games where the, the deadline pressure is just excruciating. And in some ways you kind of want like all the action at the very stop, very start of the, the debate. So you can write your story on deadline. You don't want like late surprises of uh, the difference between sports and covering politics is that it's sort of the incremental calendar that I mentioned earlier. It's, it's not like, um you know, it's, it, it's every four years instead of like every year, there's like an NCAA tournament every March, right? Like for us, the presidentials every four years. So you kind of see these folks back in Iowa and New Hampshire in four-year increments. Um, but yeah, bonds develop, relationships flourish. I met my wife, by the way, on the campaign trail. So uh, in 2008 in Iowa, we were hanging out there. We were just friends because what happens is um, in Iowa, New Hampshire, especially at the start of these races – you're going to the same restaurants and bars, staying at the same hotels. Everybody's getting their Marriott points um, and you hang out in groups with sources and, you know, expense your meals, uh, ideally. Um, and so, yeah, like people get to know each other. So your, your wife, Betsy, was the uh, she was at NBC News at the time. Am I wrong about that? Yeah. So she was the longtime producer of Meet the Press. Um, uh, in fact, sadly, the, the uh, 10th year anniversary of Tim Russert's passing just um happened this week um so she was the longtime producer for tim russert at meet the press and um so, so she was on the tv side while i'm obviously on the print side but yes she was a, a journalist i'm fascinated by, by presidential campaigns and the coverage you know it's it's sort of like when 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 in in baseball i used to marvel at how you would go to new york and the yankee writers were very secretive around each other and yeah. they used to beat the living shit out of each other. But then you go watch yeah. the Padres and those guys are all buddy, buddy. Like, yeah. What are, what, what are the dynamics? <laughs> you're, you know, you're at the New York Times, a guy from the Washington yeah. Post, a woman from the Washington Post is covering the, you know, next to Politico, next to, are you guys yeah. buddy, buddy, or are you keeping secrets from each other? And it's kind of both. No, I think it's generally collegial because the interest is sort of getting more access and time with the candidate and trying to drive accountability from the candidate and their staff. So I think that bonds you, the sort of shared interest in getting more time and attention from the candidate um, um, and sort of keeping up a unified front when it comes to access and accountability. No doubt that there's competition and that, that that can at times boil over. Um, and sure, um, there's rivalries, but it's not that it's not really so openly hostile though. Um, you wouldn't share what you're reporting on with your competition over a drink. Um, because you don't want to tip them off, but, um, it's pretty collegial though. You did a story that ran yesterday. Republicans and primaries absorb less and cross Trump at their peril. You wrote as a, as we've a, written that story a, a few times now, haven't we? Yeah. It seems, yeah. <laughs> a continuing series, volume yeah. three, chapter seven. How do you decide? Like, are you sitting somewhere and you think, Oh, you know what I should write today? How do you actually come up with the idea for a story like yeah. that? Why are you writing that story? Sure. I mean, again, it totally depends on the moment and like what's happening in the news. So some of this is like enterprise where like you come up with it based upon like patterns that you're seeing or. Um, what's about to happen. There's like a, you know, a primary coming up or a series of primaries coming up that all have some kind of trend. Uh, and you want to get, get out ahead of that story. For example, 
my colleague Alex Burns and I on Monday did a story about women running in the governor's primaries um, all over the country. And there's going to be a lot of these this summer where women are running for governor in a lot of states against men who were oftentimes like much better funded than they are. And women have had a much more difficult time winning governorships than they have winning seats in Congress. And capturing why that is, and you know, is that going to change this year where we're seeing women have so much success um, getting the nomination for Congress? Um, so like capturing the glass ceiling in the state house and doing that through the prism of these upcoming races. So that's one way, right? Just trend spotting and looking at what's to come. The story you mentioned. So Tuesday, Mark Sanford is upset in South Carolina. Kind of a household name because he was governor and had that <laughs> famous affair with the Argentine woman. So pretty familiar face in American politics who resurrected his career and won a seat in Congress despite his past uh, infidelity and has served in Congress since 13 suddenly is upset. Like, and why is that? Well, in large part, it's because he was critical of Trump and he had a primary opponent who held his Trump criticism up repeatedly and said, we need someone who's going to be loyal to the president. So like, that's a big story. And on the same night, this sort of provocateur wins the Senate nomination in Virginia, um, somebody who's kind of done Trump style incendiary politics. So those two things happened on the same night. Well, <laughs> the next day, editor is like, what's going on? And they want a story, a sort of next day story capturing like, what is happening in Republican politics now where, you you know, Mark Sanford loses his primary. This guy, Corey Stewart, wins in Virginia. So that's an example of just the events taking place, uh, prompting editors to want um, to sort of capture like the bigger picture of, of, of what's happening in Trump's GOP. So it just depends, man, on like the moment, the, the you know, the calendar, what just happened, what's about to happen. Like what you're seeing out there, you know, if you get a tip on something like a big scoop, ideally, like you'd pursue that. Uh, it just it, it really varies based upon the moment. What is your uh, I feel like everyone has a money story. Yeah. I feel like every journalist, you may disagree, has a money story from their career. One, yeah. the craziest story, the story you tell parties, you know, the story, blah, blah, blah. What's your money story? Um, well, I'm a couple things. Um. There was a guy named Herman Cain, who you, uh, used to be the CEO of Godfather's Pizza, and then became a, a political figure and ran for president in 2012. Uh, I was still a politico at the time, and I, it turns out that Herman Cain had like a track record of sexually harassing women. And this is like years before me, too. This is 2011 at this point. And um, so I did a story about his history of sexual harassment. It turns out he had a settlement with a woman who was his colleague he had sexually harassed. And it wound up driving him out of the campaign for president. He dropped out. And that was memorable because of the nature of the material and because his staff was so incompetent that I could not get a response to the question of, like, what does he want to say about these charges? And you can't print the story unless you got some kind of reaction from the principal um, when they're being accused of sexual harassment. So I had to show up outside the CBS News Bureau in D.C. where he was taping Face the Nation, and I had to confront him afterwards on the street you know, kind of like 60 minute style, right? Where you like go up to the person. Wait, I have a question. Person. How yeah. are you feeling in that moment? You're about to, you have, you're there. I love these moments. Like you're, uh, yeah. you're there. Here he is. He's a big right. figure, blah, blah, blah. A lot yeah. of money, famous politics. You have to ask him about this. How are you feeling in the 10 seconds before you're asking the question? 
you just want to like make sure that you get it right and you, and that you you get your answer that so you can put something in the paper. You know, it, it's just like what's the best way to approach this kind of thing? What's the tightest frame of the question that I can ask? This sort of gets me the answer that I need so, so I can then get some kind of a reaction that we can put high up in the story. Um, what was interesting about that is there are cameras that are set up outside of the Washington bureaus of all the networks on Sundays so that they can grab like a, a soundbite or two from the politicians that are coming out after they tape their Sunday shows. <laughs> so there were cameras from the networks there. And I tried to like wait until he kind of got away a little bit from the bureau to get off camera and away from their sound. Because right. I was still working on a story that was an exclusive, and I didn't right. want it to be picked up by the network cameras. They still picked it up, and you can sort of barely make it out. In fact, if you go on YouTube, you can sort of see me talking to him, and it's like it's kind of picked up a little bit from the, the cameras that were out there, um, this, this sort of uh, interaction between the two of us. Two other moments from the 08 campaign that aren't money stories but are just memorable that I take with me, one of them kind of lighthearted and fun, and the other a little bit more – Profound um, that y- your listeners who are uh, and big sports folks will appreciate. So Fred Thompson, the late Fred Thompson, the actor yeah. turned politician who ran for president in 08, You know he was not like the most eager campaigner to be generous. He wasn't no. somebody who was like working fourteen hours a, a day. Um, he had a pretty good life, uh, and he didn't want to sort of like work too hard running for president. Um, and so God bless him. Man. He, he was in Florida and he, he did a Florida bus tour, which is not easy because it's a big state, but it gives you lots of downtime in between stops. <laughs> and so he ended his bus tour of Florida in Gainesville at the swamp for the Tennessee Florida game because he was a Tennessee guy. Like I'm sure because he wanted to go to the game, right? right. And so I was thrilled with that because that means I could go to the game too. So. It was fall of 07. So this is Tebow's sophomore year, Percy Harvin's freshman year. And they just like lit up Tennessee. And it was a great moment where I was on the clock technically. I'm like watching the, the, you know, Florida Tennessee game with Fred Thompson. Um, That's awesome. And so that was kind of, that was kind of fun. I was in 10, I started my career at the Tennessean. That guy was the, it always felt like everyone was like, you should run for president. And at some point he was just like, yeah, I guess I'll run for president. But it never (laughs) felt like you really, you never really wanted to be president. You just well, yeah, like, yeah, I guess I guess seven oh eight. It was like the end of the Bush years, oh seven, oh eight. The Republicans needed somebody who could sort of unite the party, and McCain was seen as a little bit too independent, and they weren't certain about Romney. Anyways, that's all ancient history now. Um, yeah. but it's like Fred for a moment there was seen as like the guy that could sort of unify the party. It turns out he wasn't really up for uh, a campaign and wasn't the candidate for the moment, but he got me into the swamp and seeing Tim, Tim Tebow and Percy Harvin. So um, for that, I am thankful to Fred Thompson. Um, the other moment from that campaign that's memorable that um, was just incredible to sort of see history transpire was Selma, Alabama, the commemoration of Bloody Sunday, um, which takes place there every March. This time, though, because it was 2007, it was the year before the 2008 presidential. And so it was a big moment in the Democratic primary. You had both Clintons, Bill and Hillary there. And at the time, this is March of 07, Hillary was like the dominant candidate, still the front runner. And Obama was this upstart, but wasn't as big of a deal as the Clintons. And so both Clintons are there and Obama is there. Um, and you sort of had this moment where Obama was at one black church and Hillary was at the black church across the street both in the pulpits preaching before coming together and taking part in the, the traditional march across the bridge with John Lewis and all of these lions of the civil rights movement. 
And you could see in that moment, like the passing of the baton in the Democratic Party between the Clintons and the and Obama. Now, it was less a passing of, of, of a you know, baton and more of a seizing of a baton, actually, because right, the Clintons right. didn't want to give it up that easily. But you could sort of see in that moment that like Obama was becoming as big of a deal as the Clintons. And obviously, he would eventually supersede them and win that nomination. But in this little small town in Alabama, historic place, the ghost of the civil rights movement, these black churches where King had planned the march on Montgomery to see the, these two candidates preach and then walk across the bridge with John Lewis in tow. You kind of know you're in a big moment. And to sort of be there for me was really uh, memorable. And um, uh, it's incredible as the years go on to think about what I saw there at this moment. Now, I will admit I made the tragic mistake of going to the Hillary church where she was ah. preaching instead of the Obama church. And Obama gave what is now a famous speech about the Joshua generation and sort of casting himself as the heir to King, King as Moses, him as Joshua. And Obama sort of taking the the, the reins of the sort of next generation of the, the civil rights movement. And stupidly, instead of like going to that sermon from a, a future president, um, uh, I went to the Hillary church because I thought that would be the better story is seeing, seeing the white lady of the black church. You know? And you hindsight, I should have Yeah. Yeah, I was poor, but, you know, I was there afterwards for the march across the bridge. So that was kind of cool in that, in that moment. Um, you know, look, I, I, I think your first campaign, obviously, you kind of recall the, those moments, especially even more. They kind of yeah, loom, loom larger in hindsight, but that was really fun. Let me ask you a final question. I'm not going to ask you who you want to win elections, you blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Is it, obviously you have opinions in your life. Yeah. You have, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. like this guy. Is it ever hard to suppress? your sort of personal feelings when it comes to covering politics or is it easy? Not really that hard. Um, you know, it's funny. I, I think about sports coverage too. I mean, in, in some ways, like you want the drama and you want the story. Um, you want the unknown, the unexpected. Other times when you're on like a deadline, you want easy, simple, straight, <laughs> predictable. Right. So you can get your story done. Um, Look, it's not – if you cover this stuff long enough and if you're up close to it like we are, you get skeptical to the point of cynical about the process and about politicians and what drives politicians. So, like, they are who they are and they, they act according to, like, an incentive structure um, that we're very familiar with now. And um, if you put too much stock in a politician, it's going to break your heart because, like, they're politicians. And here's the other thing uh, that I would say is – I think I speak for a lot of journalists when I say, like, if we had really strong views about politics and politicians, we'd work in politics or work for a politician. Like, what drives me every day and what, what, what like, makes me do this job is not that I'm, like, in love with one side or the other or one candidate or the other. It's that I'm curious about the how and the why. And I want to know, like, why they're saying what they're saying and they're doing what they're doing and trying to, like, figure out, like, what's next and figure out, like, what isn't known and, like, break news, um, that to me is more compelling than, you know, like what, what one side is doing and like supporting them or advocating for them. There's plenty of room for advocacy, but if that's what drives you, then you want to be in politics, not covering politics. Listen, I appreciate your time a whole lot. This is a totally different spin on, uh, on this podcast. And, uh, well, I'm thrilled I'm that you asked me. I love your stuff and I'm psyched for the USFL. I want to thank today's guest, Jonathan Martin, for joining me on Two Riders Slinging Yang. You can follow Jonathan on Twitter at jmartnyt and read his stuff in the New York Times. This podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports. 
king of the throwback sports merchandise, visit the website at 503-sports.com. One can listen to Two Riders Singing Yang on Apple Music and Google Play, and your views are always appreciated. Music by the great MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep riding. 